Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for the young people you've blessed us with at this church. And thought about this sermon for months, Lord, and, and looked forward even to the new year to be able to deliver it. So I pray that it might be one that would be used in our uh, church, not just for this morning, but even for years to come. Many people would look back on it, Lord, and just recognize the need for young people to be serious about their faith, serious about their commitment to Christ, and recognize that you would use them in wonderful and powerful ways for your glory, for other service. And so I, I do pray that this would be the time you would take full advantage of to minister, especially to the young people. And, and I would pray even to the parents as we raise children and for the older uh, people here, whether grandparents or not, because of the example and influence they have in our children's lives. And so help the young people not to despise their youth. And I pray they would set a good example, Lord, and that you'd use this sermon to encourage them to do so. Thank you for this time and pray that through Christ can be exalted. If for no other reason, then he would be the reason that we would serve uh, serve you and that we would strive to set an example of any age as your witnesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title of this morning's sermon is Don't Let Anyone Look Down on You Because You Are Young. So you can tell from the sermon and probably my prayer that this is a sermon that will be largely directed to young people. So I told you when we began the new year that I had a few sermons that I wanted to deliver before we continue our verse-by-verse study through Luke. And this is one of them. The people known as the greatest generation were born from 1901 to 1927. Uh, What did they live through, these people? They lived through Great Depression. They lived through World War I. Many of them fought in World War II. Most of us have seen photos of the June 6, 1944 Normandy landing. It's also known as D-Day. And many of those young men in those boats look like they probably wouldn't even be graduated from high school yet, right, but willing to risk their lives, many of them dying for the freedoms that we're able to enjoy today, even religious freedoms, I'd say. We wouldn't have those that had Nazis, uh, Germany won. The young people of this generation, they're celebrated for their sacrifices and their maturity at young ages. The other day I read that when the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, Thomas Jefferson was 33, James Madison was 25, Alexander Hamilton was 21, Aaron Burr was 20, and James Monroe was 18. Now, sadly, when people talk about the young people of our generation, what are some words they, what are some negative words they might frequently use? Lazy, entitled, selfish, okay, we'll stop there, let's try (laughs) it. The premier example of this might be young people taking their parents to court, such as when Rachel Canning sued her parents to force them to pay for her private college tuition. Her father shared, and I thought this was very reasonable, she wouldn't follow our house rules concerning curfew and chores. She felt entitled to private school, a new car, and college education. Ephesians 6.2 commands children to honor their parents, but Rachel and other children like her do the opposite. Our culture has come up with ways to define young people. For example, we'll use words like teenager or adolescent, but Scripture never uses these words. Instead, Scripture talks about children, men, young men, older men, women, young women, and older women. For example, 1 Timothy 5.1, do not rebuke an older man. Encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Titus 2.2 says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, steadfastness. Older women, likewise, to be reverent in behavior, not slander or slave to much wine. Teach what's good. Train young women to love their husbands and their children. And I was just thinking of something I want to share. I didn't put this in my notes, but on the post that I read about the ages of the individuals that, that signed the Declaration of Independence, There was a gentleman that commented about the state of the church, and I was already planning on preaching this sermon when I read that, but I thought, I don't have a responsibility for other churches. God hasn't called me to them. I don't feel particularly obligated to them. If I can serve in some way, if I'm invited to preach or do a conference or something, and the elders agree with that, then it's a privilege to serve that church in that way, but my responsibility is to this church. And so when that gentleman 
was criticizing the state of young people in the church today, and, I, and he's a Christian, I assume, and I believe his heart is right that he would like to see young people serve the Lord better. My first thought was, well, I can't worry about what's happening in other churches, but I can worry about what's happening in this church. I don't have a responsibility to other churches, but I have a responsibility to this church. And it's personal to me because I'm also a father of 10. <laughs> so when we talk about the young people in this church doing well, or to be candid with you, if I want to think about part of the reason I'm preaching this sermon, I want my children listening to it. <laughs> I have very good reasons to want the young people in this church to serve Christ because I'm responsible for a good number of them. And so but if you're part of this church, you also have that responsibility. If you're an older person, if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, then you should be praying for our young people. You should be burdened for them as well. Now, people are said to reach adulthood at the age of 18, and it actually kind of depends on the culture or the country. It seems to be anywhere from 16 to 21. The fact that there is not agreement about when children reach adulthood tells us that the world can't figure it out. Now, we don't want to look to the culture or the world for definitions or explanations. And so the question is, what does God's word say? The Old Testament seems to identify 20 as the age that people move from being children to adults. And I say seem because I don't have a verse spelling this out, but here are the verses that came to mind that made me think that would be the recognized number. When the Israelites rebelled in the wilderness, when they reached the border of the promised land, they criticized God and said that God brought Israel out of Egypt to murder them and their children in the wilderness. God responded by saying, all of this generation is going to die except for your children. Your children are going to go into the promised land, and those children were everyone who was younger than 20. People 20 years and older were counted when there was a census. People 20 years and older could serve in the military. Now, does this mean that children are not expected to be mature until they're 20. That's not at all what this means. In fact, if we move from the Old Testament and we look at the New Testament, here's a verse that came to mind. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul said, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So interestingly, Paul did not define manhood, childhood, or womanhood by any number, but instead by behavior. Or in other words, he didn't say he became a man when he reached a certain age. He said he became a man when he did what? Or maybe because they stopped what? Childish ways. It was stopping the childish ways that allowed him to move from childhood to manhood. So because of that, there are some children who are more mature, or to use biblical language, we could say there are some children who reach manhood or womanhood earlier than some people who might be much older simply because of the childish ways that they have put away now conversely there could be much older people who are more immature than younger people because of the childish ways that they have not put away when we look at scripture we see that there were many people who were still young but behaved maturely and we're called to serve in very mature roles for the Lord. And this brings us to lesson one. God wants to use young men and women. Lesson one, God wants to use young men and women. So to understand the flow of this sermon, since it's, it's more topical, and when you preach a topical sermon, you kind of decide the flow of it, let's just establish this pattern or understand that there's this pattern in Scripture that God wants to use young men and women unfortunately well let me just ask you just say an age or decade of life that comes to mind when you think of the 12 disciples they are in their what what do you say huh 30s 40s perhaps there's probably two reasons we think they are that old first jesus began his ministry when he was 30. luke 323 jesus when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age but that actually argues that the disciples would be younger than 30 because if jesus is their teacher and they are his students or disciples they would by their roles be younger than him 
Over the years, you've probably noticed that I'm not the biggest fan of Bible pictures because they're often misleading. I especially don't like pictures of Jesus. If we're given dimensions or descriptions, then it's reasonable to have a picture. And what I mean by that is the Ark of the Covenant or the Temple or the Tabernacle give us a description of what they look like. We're given dimensions, so it's reasonable to have pictures or illustrations that can be very helpful for them. But if Scripture doesn't give us any description, then we get in trouble when we start providing images of things that are not described for us, right? And you can probably guess why I'm mentioning this, because one of the areas or ways in which images have been very problematic is regarding the 12 disciples. Listen to this because they're typically pictured in their 30s, 40s, maybe older. The biblical world is a journal, and I want to read part of the article titled, How Old Were Christ's Disciples? And it reads, Our mental pictures of the scenes described in the Gospels are greatly influenced by impressions that were received from the illustrated books of our childhood, and by the way those scenes have been depicted by the great artists. Painters have been inclined to represent most of the 12 disciples as heavily bearded men, apparently in middle life, if not beyond it. Peter and some of the others being bald-headed. Are such pictures true to the facts? How old were these men? Now, the article itself is 10 pages long, so I'm not going to read all of it to you, but I do want to share the conclusion. The 12 disciples were not far from 16 or 17 here are some safe reasons, or some reasons that's a safe bet. Matthew eleven twenty five, Luke ten twenty one, John thirteen thirty three. Jesus referred to the disciples not as children, but as little children. Second, for John to write lot, lots of Johns in Scripture, but the John who's at the foot of the cross is the author of the Gospel of John, the author of First, Second, and Third John, and the author of the Book of Revelation. For John to be at the foot of the cross and be one of Jesus' disciples, and also write the book of Revelation around 95 or 96 AD, he must have been pretty young, probably 15 or 16, when he was chosen as one of Jesus' disciples. Third, there's at least one account that seems to indicate that all of the disciples, except for Peter, were under 20. And this would explain why, of the disciples, Peter rose to the top and became the leader of the group and was the only disciple that was married. According to Exodus 30, 13, and 14, everyone who was 20 years or older had to pay the temple tax. Matthew 17, 24 to 27 shows the account when the disciples paid the temple tax, but even though all of them were present, only Jesus and Peter paid it because the other's disciples were not 20 at that time. A few of the disciples had established jobs. Peter, Andrew, James, John were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. That could lead you to believe that they're older than they are, but Jewish schooling concluded around 12 years of old, 12 years of age. And so they would begin working without some formal education or going off to university for four or six or, or eight years. And so if they begin their jobs conclude schooling at 12 and begin their jobs at 13 or 14, it's very reasonable that we would see disciples around that age who also were called when they were working or had jobs at that, at that time. Now, why might Jesus have wanted the disciples to be young? Or let me say it like this, why might Jesus have needed the disciples to be young? The simple way that I'd say it is their ministries are beginning when his is ending. Does that make sense? I mean, it's the acts of the apostles. It begins after Jesus's ascension to heaven. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, the church doesn't begin, it's generally accepted, until Acts 2, Pentecost. So the foundation of the church is going to be laid by those apostles. So their ministry is beginning when Jesus's ministry is ending. He's going to need them to be young, to go on to do those years or decades of work. God corrected, or we could even argue rebuked, at least one young man who said that he was too young to serve him. And that's the prophet Jeremiah. Let's listen to this, Jeremiah 1.5. God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
Then Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So Jeremiah thought he was too young for this ministry that God had for him, and it did sound intimidating. He's going to go speak to, speak for God to nations. That would sound intimidating to me. Listen to how God responds. Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So God didn't reply to Jeremiah's objection by saying something like what? Okay, I was wrong. You're right. You're too young to serve me. Why don't you just go and spend the next few years on social media or playing video games or wasting all of the vitality and energy that you have, watch television, goof off, and then when you're older, you can become one of my prophets. Instead, God expected to Jeremiah to preach to nations even as a young man. Young people today are not called to be prophets or to be apostles but they should still see themselves as Jesus' disciples. We should still see ourselves as his students, servants, regardless of our age. God gives young people gifts to minister, to use in the body of Christ. They should not believe the young people here, to speak to you directly, you young people here should not believe that you are too young to serve the Lord or to use your gifts. Hopefully, you're still in 2 Chronicles 34. Look with me at verse 1. Jeremiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 34 years in Jerusalem. Now, I know this appears to break down because none of our young people are called to be kings or, or queens, but that's not the point. The point is that Josiah was serving the Lord at a very young age, and our young people can serve the Lord at young ages too. It's not going to be as kings, but it's going to be in other areas of faithfulness. It can be as a faithful brother or sister. It can be as a faithful son or daughter. It can be faithful with your chores. It can be faithful finding ways to serve or bless others or pray for others. Verse 2 says, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of David his father, and he didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So the part that sticks out to me is even at eight years of age, it says that Josiah was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If Josiah can do what's right in the eyes of the Lord at eight years of age, then all of you young people in here can be doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, if you're eight or older. And notice it says, walked in the ways of David his father. Now, David wasn't the, Josiah's father. David was his great, great times 20 grandfather. I think there's about 20 people between David and Josiah, but the Old Testament doesn't have a word for grandfather, great grandfather, or great times 20 father. And, but it's still referring to David. And this is a part that was sobering to me, because David set such an example that 20 generations later, they were still walking in his ways. Now, this is where we move on from the young people and we start thinking about what it's like as an adult or as a father or as a mother and what sort of ways we're setting for the young people that will follow us. What are the, the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-grandchildren who come after us what is our example setting for them? That's just something to answer in the privacy of our own hearts and consider that well after we're gone, there will be a legacy that we leave that can be influencing people who come decades or even centuries after us, as was the case with David. Verse 3, in the eighth year of his reign, we're even told, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. So now he's 16. At 16, Scripture says he is seeking God. And what's particularly impressive to me about this is Josiah was doing this without parental influence. In fact, you could argue that his parents pointed him away from the Lord. The reason that Josiah became king at eight years old is because his father, Ammon, 
was executed by God at such a young age. I think Ammon only reigned two years. And Ammon's father was Manasseh. So when you're looking at Josiah's father, you've got Ammon, an evil man, and then you've got a grandfather in Manasseh, who's one of the evilest or maybe evilest men in the Old Testament prior to his repentance. And so my point is, Josiah started serving the Lord without even the godly heritage that many of our, our young people know. The example he saw in his father and his grandfather would have drawn him away from the Lord. But Josiah still sought the Lord anyway. Verse 3 goes on and says, In the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and the metal images. So now he's purging the nation of sin. He's 20 at this time. I mean, talk about great spiritual leadership. He's not just doing this on his own. He's leading the nation to remove all this idolatry from the land. Great leadership or great spiritual leadership just at 20. Skip to verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, this refers to the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So now the 18th year of his reign, he's 26 at this time. And what's he doing? He's cleansing, he's repairing the temple, which had understandably fallen into disarray under the reign of Am and his father, who again, I think, reigned two years, but his grandfather Manasseh reigned 55 years. So in those 57 years of wickedness, you can imagine how far the Lord, uh, the people drifted from the Lord and what sort of condition the temp God's house would find itself in. And so one of the things Josiah did was to repair it, to cleanse it. We don't have time to read all the verses, but here's what happened. Josiah sent people to repair the temple, and one of the other things that is going to be disregarded when people drift from the Lord is going to be his word. So there was no regard for the law. So when they're cleansing the temple, they happen to find the law. I mean, imagine that. You've got the law and, or the word of God in God's house, right? So they find the law, and then they bring it back to Josiah, and they read it to him. And I want you to notice his response. Skip to verse 19. So when the word was read to him, it says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, to be candid with you, I don't care what age you are, this must be one of the most beautiful responses to God's word in scripture. He was so convicted, so broken by what he heard that his immediate response was this grief that manifests itself as tearing his clothes, recognizing how far they have fallen from the standard that God's word sets. You don't have to turn there, but the parallel account in Kings tells us that he also reinstituted Passover. Listen to this, and I want you to listen to how long it had been since Passover had been observed. 2 Kings 23, 21, Josiah commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah, but in the 18th year, so this would be when Josiah is 26, the Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, if you go back to the days of judges, which is about almost three and a half centuries long, it's been anywhere from, and this also means all of the previous kings had not celebrated Passover, it's been three or four centuries since the nation has observed this, one of if the most important feasts, or probably only second to the Day of Atonement. Yet Josiah comes on the scene, and he ensures that the nation celebrates it. Now, my suspicion is, if they haven't celebrated it for this many centuries, probably a lot of people that didn't want to celebrate it. The nation seemed particularly far from God. I do not think that this was an easy thing for Josiah to do, especially at 26 years old, but this is what he did. Now, the premier verse addressing young people is 1 Timothy 4.12, if you'll turn there, please. 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul's talking to Timothy. First Timothy 4.12, and we'll be in this verse for a bit. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. And then he says these five things, speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. 
Now, this is fascinating to me because Paul didn't, as we might expect, tell Timothy to set an example for unbelievers, which I imagine would be a much easier thing to do. You don't have to set a very high standard in terms of behavior or conduct to be an example for unbelievers. But Paul told Timothy to set an example to believers. It's much harder to be an example to godly people or to believers because they're already behaving in a godly way. For you to be an example to them, you must be behaving in a way that they can look up to. And that's what Paul told Timothy to do. Let's talk about each of these five ways, and this brings us to lesson two. Young people should set an example in part one word. Young people should set an example in word. This is to say that the way young people speak should set an example. When Jesus was 12 years old, his parents left him at the temple, went back to get him, an account that should encourage every parent that's forgotten a child behind, like I have multiple times. They went back to get him, and then we read this, Luke 2, 46. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple. He's sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, obviously, you're saying, well, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh, but we're to imitate him. And we probably mostly think of imitating him after his public ministry began at 30. But one of the other ways that we can imitate Christ is to, and this is all we have from his youth. There's his birth account, it jumps forward 12 years to this, and then it jumps forward 18 years to his public ministry. And we have this account where he's setting this example, it seems to me, nothing supernatural about it, through his speech, through the things that he's saying. It says that he's asking them questions and listening. Now, that's interesting because we typically think that people are impressive by what they say, by how intelligent or knowledgeable they sound. Jesus, there's some of that with Jesus because they were impressed by his answers. But at the same time, have you ever noticed how impressive it is when people, especially young people, ask questions and listen well? When I was a school teacher, I knew that most of the time, when a student asked me a question like what I did that weekend, that student wants to tell me what he did that weekend. And I know that because the student says, hey, Mr. Lapierre, what did you do this weekend? I get about three words out before he says, starts telling me about what he did. Have you ever noticed how impressive it is when young people ask questions and actually want to hear the answer? Because it shows a desire to what? To learn. That is a sign of maturity. It's, it's not it lacks the attitude that might be perhaps trying to impress or show off by talking and instead is choosing to be in that position of student or learner. And that's one of the things that we can see from Jesus. Next, assess set an example in conduct, part two of lesson two. Young people should set an example in conduct. The way young people behave, the way they, or let me say, you young people. I should be talking to you when I preach this. The way you young people behave, the way you conduct yourselves should set an example. Now, this also is pretty surprising to me because when people are young, we tend to think that their behavior doesn't serve as an example for others. They think that nobody looks up to them. Nobody cares what they do. And sometimes, to be honest, the adults, if I have the adults' attention, we're the ones that can make this worse. When we treat young people like they don't have anything to offer. When I was at Grace Baptist and I was the youth pastor, there was a kind of a, the older people seemed to look down on the young people. But when I talked to the young people, and the, the older people would say, well, the young people don't talk to us. The older people would say, the young people don't respect us. They don't give us attention. They're not interested in us. But then I would go talk to the young people and guess what they said? The old people are super intimidating. We're afraid of them. And I think that there was some truth to that. So older people, you can be friendly. You can talk to younger people. That will make it easier for them to engage with you. But when people are young and they think their behavior shouldn't serve as an example, Scripture clearly argues against that. Another way to describe conduct is behavior. So if you're a young person, how would people describe your behavior? 
When you enter a room, are you loud? Are you obnoxious? Is your desire to draw attention to yourself? Or are you interested in others? Do you think about others? Are you looking for new people to talk to? Are you concerned about the needs or what's going on in other people's lives? Might they have a struggle or are they suffering through something? And perhaps being able to listen to them or be interested in them would be a big blessing to them. This might sound harsh, but are you whiny? Are you a young person who's whiny? Are you frequently complaining? Are you selfish? Are things frequently about you? Most of your conversations, some way to share some story about yourself, what you've done, more than likely one that makes you look proud. Or when you're talking, is it because you're trying to get to know others, you're interested in them, you know that this happened in this person's life, and now you've passed, you knew this was going to happen in this person's life, that event has passed, so the next time you see that person, you say, hey, I knew you were gonna do this, how did this go? How was this trip? You were on vacation. How was that? How are things going since this? That is a great way to conduct yourself as a young person in a way that can be an example to others. God wants to help you young people in these areas. So you're not alone in this. You should seek him. You should pray to him. If you recognize you're weak in one of these areas, nobody wants to see you grow in one of these five ways more than the Lord himself. So if we go through these and, you, and you're, you cringe a little, you're convicted and you say, well, yeah, I would like to be better with my speech or I'd like to be better with my conduct. I'd like to be more interested in others. That's a good thing to pray for and just ask the Lord to help you grow in that area. Next, young people should set an example in love. I won't spend a lot of time on this because we talked about it so many times, but love is not feelings. <laughs> Love is actions. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is not filled with any adjectives describing how you might feel towards someone. It is filled with verbs or action words because it's describing what you might do for someone. So to say the young people should set an example in love is to say the young people should set an example in their actions. Now, why would it say that? How could it say that? My suspicion is it relates to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 and 34, which say the same thing. The unmarried man and woman are anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. So if you're unmarried, you have more time than married people do. You have definitely have more time than parents do. When you're young, you will never have as much time, energy, lack of responsibilities as you do so take advantage of that don't squander that think of the ways that you can be loving or that your actions can serve or bless others because your life is going to get incredibly more complicated when you get older and you have responsibilities such as a spouse such as a job such as children and so when you're young, consider what God wants you to do. And that's even what it says. The unmarried man and woman are anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please him. So if you're, if you're married, you're thinking, how do I please my spouse? How do I please my children? But if you're unmarried, which is to say you're young, you're thinking, I don't have these same responsibilities as spouse and children, so what does the Lord want me to do? How can I please and serve him? The next part, the young people shall set an example in part for faith in faith i'll make this one probably the shortest one by just saying that few things are as encouraging for older saints as the faith of young people there are few things that will remind older people to be zealous themselves because uh, faith can grow stale it can even become cold as we get older. Some of the freshness of our faith can be lost. And one of the best things to renew faith as we get older is the faith of young people that we observe. And so young people, there are few things that can be more encouraging to the older Christians around you than to see your passion or your zeal for the Lord. The last thing, Young people should set an example in part five, purity. Now, this could be another shocker because it seems to almost be accepted that young people are going to be impure. 
They're not married yet. They don't have outlets to satisfy the desires they have. And so there's just this expectation that young people are going to be impure, but not according to Scripture. He says that young people should be setting an example in purity. Now, this means the young people must be sensitive to the things they look at. They must be quick to rip their eyes away. A sensitive heart is one that's cultivated. It it takes time to have a sensitive heart. It's deliberate. It's intentional. It doesn't just happen. You have to make decisions as a young person about what is acceptable to let before your eyes or let into your ears because that's what's going to allow something to go into your mind and then into your heart. So young people, God expects you to set an example in purity. In fact, you can get older and become less sensitive to these things. You can become more hardened to them. And so consider the importance during these very formative years to develop a sensitivity toward things you shouldn't hear or see or say so that you don't become hardened as you get older. Consider this verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God did not call us to be impure, but he called us to live a holy life. That verse makes purity and holiness synonymous. One more time. God didn't call us to be impure, which is to say he called us to be impure, or he called us to be pure, but then it says he's called us to live a holy life, which is to say that to be pure is to be holy. So those are synonymous. Now, this seems a little counterintuitive because we expect older people to set that example in these areas. So why would Paul say that young people should set the example in purity or holiness? And I want to answer this by sharing two things that happen as we get older. I'll use myself as an example. Two things that happen as I get older. First, there's credibility that I gain. And it should be this way, because Job 12.12, wisdom is with the aged and understanding with the length of days. So when you get older, it is expected that you will know more, that you will be wiser, more knowledgeable. So you will have greater credibility as you get older. But I would say that there is one way in which we lose credibility as we get older, and it's regarding holiness. And here's what I mean. As I get older, I lose credibility, at least when I talk about certain things, because people expect me to say them because I'm old. So here's what I mean. If you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, and you talk conservatively, guess what everyone thinks? Well, that's just because you're old. We expect you to say that. We expect you to feel that way. You're kind of out of touch with reality. Well, of course you're going to say that. But if you're young, do you understand the voice that you have that us older people don't have? Do you understand that if you're young, you have a credibility regarding holiness that will be lost as you get older? That as a young person, you actually have a louder voice, whether verbally or through your actions, because actions speak as well, than the people who are older than you? And so this is why I want to, at least as long as I'm still not that old, try to preach as boldly as I can on conservative topics because I recognize that I have greater credibility now than I will when I'm saying some of these same things when I'm 50, 60, or 70. So you young people should be setting an example in purity and holiness because you have the most credibility. It is one thing when older people preach these things, but it's another thing entirely when you young people do because of how much more powerful it is to those listening. I'll share one more verse, turn to Ecclesiastes 12.1, and this will be the last place we turn this morning. So while you turn there, you young people, live holy lives. Be holy, live set apart, separate from the world. Be holy or separate in these ways we're talking about, speech, conduct, your behavior, because it is an incredible witness to the rest of the world that looks on. Now, Ecclesiastes 12.1, Solomon says, Remember your Creator, 
in the days of, so Ecclesiastes is one of the poetical books toward the middle of your Bibles, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, a small, only 12 chapters long, a little smaller, might be harder to find, Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now here's what I would expect if I didn't know this verse. I would expect God to tell everyone to remember their creator because everyone needs to remember their creator. Or I would expect God, and I'm serious, I'm telling you, this is just my thoughts, to tell older people to remember their creator because they're older and closer to meeting him, right? (laughs) So I think Solomon's going to say, hey, you older people, you need to remember your creator before you're standing in front of him. Get things right now. So why would God tell young people to remember their creator? I have three reasons that I believe this is the case, and I'll give them quickly, and this brings us to lesson three. Remember your creator when you're young because part one, everything is working well. Everything is working well. I'll try to illustrate this lesson this way. People remember their creator or turn to him very quickly when there's a heart attack or when there's a diagnosis that they don't like or when they see their health failing as solomon describes in the previous verses the the context for this is the previous verses describe old age and describe all the things that accompany it and then he gets to this and then says so remember your creator when you're young And his point is, remember your creator when you're young before all of these things happen. And why is that? Because all of those things serve as very good reminders for us to remember our creator. Can you imagine how many people have gotten the diagnosis for a terminal disease and immediately done what? Prayed. Have you ever heard that there's no atheists in foxholes kind of thing? So when people's mortality is recognized, which it is not recognized when you're young, they suddenly become spiritual or religious. We don't like having physical problems, but one of the wonderful benefits is they cause us to turn to the Lord. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Few things cause us to pray more than health issues. But when you're young, you don't have those health issues, typically. Things are working well for you. And that can cause you to forget about your creator or decide to think about him when you're older. It's easy to forget God when you feel good. So Solomon says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before your body starts breaking down and then forces you to think about him. The next part of lesson three, remember your creator when you're young because meeting him seems so far away. Meeting him seems far away. Older people think about death. Young people do not think about death. In fact, when you're young, you think you will never die. It's a very unpleasant thought. Katie has been beginning the day in our home by having some of the kids watch a sermon. And the other day, it was a Paul Washer sermon. And Paul Washer said, get off social media and spend the rest of the day thinking about your death that's paul washer isn't it so all of you young people get off social media put your phones down and start thinking about dying it will be very good for you (laughs) but the truth is this is the truth when you're young you don't think about meeting your creator you think about meeting your creator when you're older and so solomon has to say this Remember your creator when you're young, when the thought of standing before him is not on your mind. Many people have gotten older, looked back, and realized that they spent much of their young lives forgetting about or ignoring their creator, much to their regret or shame. They wish they would have done what Solomon said here and remembered their creator when they were young. And so I would say that to you young people. Don't make this... I believe Solomon is speaking... I believe Solomon wrote this book from a position of regret. If you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, it's mostly him lamenting his worldly pursuits and the shame he feels as a result 
And so he comes to the end of the book and he basically says, learn from my mistakes and don't waste your young life. Instead, think about your creator. And then last, lesson three, remember your creator when you're young because part three, or because of the world. Remember your creator when you're young because of the world. The world wants to draw you in when you are young. There is, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, there is nobody in this world that the world wants to capture more than young people. The world is after young people. If you're a parent, the world, Satan, wants your children. If the world could just have one group of people, it would be all of the young people. It would be the children. There are unique temptations that young people face. When you're young, it's easy to get caught up in everything that the world offers. Being young is exciting, but this excitement can come or become a barrier to closeness or intimacy with God. Young people can be more focused on the physical and on the temporal of this life than the spiritual and the eternal of the next life. So Solomon says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, because if you do, it will keep you from the world. That's why I believe he said this. Solomon knew that the world is trying to draw in young people, and so he says, remember your creator, because there's nothing that's going to keep you from the world or the snares of the devil more than focusing on Christ, more than focusing on the Lord. I want to conclude with a strong appeal to the young people here. So give me your attention, young people. God has given you time, energy, strength, vitality, intellect, desire, passion, talent. Basically, he has given you all the things that the previous verses, I know we didn't read them, but you can read them on your own if you'd like, that's going to diminish as you get older. The point of these verses is that you need to remember your creator because all of the gifts and talents and strengths, intellect, health that God has given you is going to diminish as you get older. Read the previous verses and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. So make the most of what you have now available to you while you are young and you still can. Or in other words, while you have all this energy, while you have all this strength, in vitality, while your mind is so sharp, while you don't have the limitations that you're going to have when, you older, have when you're older, whether it's health limitations or just uh, marriage and, and children. Serve the Lord while everything's working well for you. Do not waste what God has given you on worldly and meaningless activities and pursuits. And at least in our home, the battle that I feel like we're fighting we're fighting a battle to keep our children away from sinful or evil things, but I feel like probably the bigger battle that it seems like we're fighting is preventing our children from wasting time on meaningless or non-eternal things. Not things that I would necessarily say are evil or we grab our kids and say, hey, you need to repent of this. What were you thinking doing this? But just things like, do you really want to spend hours doing that? Is there any spiritual or eternal benefit from doing that. And so young people do not waste what God has given you on meaningless activities and pursuits. You're only going to have these gifts, talents, strengths for a limited time because they're going to diminish as you get older. Other responsibilities are going to start filling your life, taking up that vacuum that you have right now. So take the fullest advantage of your youth. Tragically, there are many people who come to the end of their lives and regret that they wasted so many years not serving God. One of the most common things I hear, whether it's uh, conferences or guest preaching or talking to people or anytime I'm outside the walls of this church dealing with Christians, I, or if it's emails I receive, one of the most common things I hear is, I wish I had served the Lord better when I was younger. Now, what's the problem with that regret? It can't be repented of. Like other things can, you can't go back and undo it. You, they know that they can do what's best for the remaining years they have, but they know that those remaining years are not as many as they were 50 or 60 years ago. 
And that is a terrible burden to have to go to the grave with. And so I hope that if you're a young person, I might be able to spare you from that and just say you don't want to get older and have to look back with regret and wish that you had been more serious about the things of Christ. Do you know one of the best examples, if not the best example, not just in Scripture, but in all of human history, of doing exactly what Solomon is warning against? Solomon. Solomon is the premier example. He's talking from experience. It is not a coincidence that he's the one who wrote this. So God uses human authors, but he uses their experiences, their knowledge, their wisdom. And in this case, he used Solomon's experience to give him the credibility to say all this. Most people understand Solomon wrote this at the end of his life. He knew better than anyone what it feels like to come to the end of your days after squandering the incredible talents and gifts that God's given you. He wasted those important, strong, healthy years on sin and worldliness, non-eternal matters. So he reaches out to young people and he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth so you will not get older and have the same regrets that I have. So the young people here read this account and say, since I know that difficult days are coming, which is what the verse says, difficult days are coming, I will not have the strength and vitality later that I do now. I want to lay a strong foundation. I want to take full advantage of everything that I have available to me now before it's diminished as I get older. Now, if you have any questions about this or I could pray for you in any way, I would consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you after service. Father, I thank you for the young people you've blessed us with in this church. I thank you for my children and the other children. I pray that this sermon wouldn't fall on deaf ears. I pray that young people would be convicted if there's areas of their lives that they have been wasteful or are squandered or are squandering the talents or gifts that you've given them, help them to even at young ages, like Josiah or the disciples demonstrated to be serious about the things of the Lord, because it's within their reach to do so. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd minister to each person here, show them best how to use the strength and vitality and time that you've given them to the fullest for your glory and for their own personal eternities. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.